Now we got to stand up for what we believe. That's why all of a sudden playing in Skillet is no longer being the nice guy, being the positive. I'm still saying the positive message, which is love your neighbor and don't burn their house down. It's the same message. Yeah. But now it looks like anger and hate because the world has lost its freaking mind. Welcome to A Better Life with Brandon Turner. That is me, where world-class guests share their wisdom on building a better life. Join me as we explore the habits, the actions, and the beliefs that have guided their journey with the aim of helping you apply those lessons to your own. John Cooper, welcome to the show, man. What's up? It's good to chat with you, man. Yeah, I'm excited about this, man. Like a long time coming. I've been uh, listening to you for many, many, many years. So I know you as the front man, the bassist. Bassist, am I saying that right? That's right. Not bassist. bass player, bassist. Yeah, not bassist. No. It's a, that's, a, that's a fisherman or something. All right. Bassist. Bassist. Spell the man. same. Spell the same. B-A-S-S. Bass and bass. Spell the same, different uh, gigs. Okay. So the front man, <laughs> the bassist of the, uh, and front man of Skillet, which is arguably one of, if not the biggest Christian rock bands and which is one of the biggest rock bands, just period. Two billion streams. I know at least your YouTube videos have ridiculous mm. number of downloads. Songs like Monster. Um, Awaken Alive, and there's a billion others I won't read. I know you as a author of several books, including the new one. I want to get this total this right. Wimpy, Weak, and Woke, How Truth Can Save America from Utopian Destruction, which I'm excited to talk about that today. I know you've done some graphic novels. Uh, you're an unapologetic podcaster. Mm. Millions of downloads. And then somehow you fit in time to be a husband and father. And you're the only rock star I know that sews his own clothes. That's right? Yeah, that's true. That's, that's true. I do. That's awesome. Yes. Not like all of my clothes or <laughs> sure, anything, yeah. but, but you know, I have you done some jacket? of that. I did not. I wish I had made this jacket. That's then cool I, jacket. Would, yeah, I would be starting a line of clothing. All right. But no, I, I alter some things, you know, and we can or can't talk about that later. But, <laughs> you know, when you don't have any money and you got to have something that looks unique and cool, you're like, well, heck, I guess I guess I got to learn how to do this. All right, man. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and you missed the most important thing that I okay. do, which is that one of your crew members said that he woke up to my voice yes. every day for three years in junior high school, <laughs> which was creepy. I, I thought it was a, a, little, a little weird. Yeah, I'm like, I don't want to be here in this pot. Mm. A better life, my butt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so that's the most important thing of the day. I've yeah. had a lot of people tell me over the years as a pot, like, yeah, I listen to you every day in the shower. I'm like, I don't know how to yeah. take that. Like, <laughs> I, thank, thank you. Yes, yeah, compliment gone. <laughs> Yeah. wrong we should start a segment called compliments yeah, compliment gone wrong, wrong. yeah, yeah. Ooh, i love listening to you in the shower great all right i think you're the most attractive person i've ever seen i've had 30 dreams about you all right the compliment went wrong just went a little too far all right man so i know you as all that today and i think a lot of our audience knows you as that but take us back way before that so before the rock star mm. john cooper who was John Cooper. How far back you want to go? Like we, how I grew up. Let's go how you grew up. I was born. Yeah. At, I was born at a very early age. <laughs> you see, so yeah. So you too. I, yeah, yeah, me too. And we, and we have all this in common, you know. Mm. So yeah, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. Um, my parents are believers. Oh, let's just say were. My parents were believers, so I grew up in a a very a Christian home. I would call it a very um, strict home. No rock music. Rock music was the worst thing mm. the devil ever did on yeah. the earth as far as my... It's like worse than drugs. Yeah. You know, sometimes I tell people, I think that my parents would have rather me been a drug dealer than a Christian rock singer. <laughs> 
because you're working straight for the devil. But, you know, no, no wearing black. You can't have long. Because I grew up in the 80s and everybody yeah. had mullets. Yeah. Man, I wanted a mullet so bad, like a soccer mullet, you know, or, or Agassi or somebody mm. like that. It was, I it's wanted beautiful. a mullet so bad. MacGyver. Do you remember yeah. the TV yeah, show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a bit older than you yeah, probably. But anyway, bit. I wanted that. And that was, you know, probably the second worst thing the devil ever did on the earth was have long <laughs> hair on men. But anyway, so I grew up in a bit of a strict home, but but a very religious home and, and a good upbringing things. Long story short. Long story which short. Which we talked about before the program. One of the best songs ever written uh, <laughs> by, by Brandon Turner. <laughs> Someday somebody will hear it. Okay. So, <laughs> long story short. So my mom got cancer when I was in sixth grade. So whatever age that is, I can't think. What is that, 10 or 11? Yeah. I don't even know. And then she died when I was 15, oh, which geez. was ninth grade. So that's about, what? well, maybe so about 12 years old. So that kind of rocked my life in a, lot, in a lot of ways. Other things that are important to note, my mom was a piano teacher. So my mom was a piano voice teacher. And so I took piano and, and voice ever since I was a kid. So music was a part of our lives at my home. It was just, that's just what the Coopers did. You all take you know yeah. lessons. My older brother played trumpet. I also play the trombone. And so that's just a part of our lives, singing, playing. But they were very particular about what kind of music you would sing <laughs> and play. So anyway, I got into rock music. As I say, it was the 80s. And so some people that are younger don't understand that in the 80s, you know, like now, if you go to the mall, anywhere you go, you're going to hear, I don't know what's on the radio these days, Taylor Swift, pop radio. Yeah. You can't escape pop radio. In the 80s, pop radio was playing metal. He was playing Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and even eventually even some Metallica songs um, every once in a while. So metal was everywhere. Rock and roll was everywhere. There was no way to escape it. And I just loved it. It spoke to me. It energized me. It made me feel like I could play sports, you know. And so if you're playing sports, you turn on metal. And then sixth, seventh grade, you start hitting the weight room with your buddies because you don't want to be a little lanky wimp. We all want to be Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, all the Rambo and yep. all those movies. You're going to the gym. You want to get buff. And what do you do? You listen to Metallica and Aerosmith, <laughs> you know? And so I just loved rock music. So when my mom died, I was like, you know what? I really feel that I want to play music, Christian music at that time. I kind of skipped over how I got listening to Christian music. But basically, Christian music was an alternative to metal. My parents also did not want me listening to it either. But I sort of said, okay, that's ridiculous. That's a line too far. I'm yeah. listening to, to Striper, <laughs> oh, Petra, yeah, yeah. Yep. you know, a whole list of Christian rock bands. And that music really got me through my mom's death and that passing and the subsequent fighting with my dad. Woo! I won't even get into that. But me and my dad did not get along. I thought life was never going to be good again. Christian music was a real center for me. And so I thought, if I could play Christian music, if I could write a song that would help somebody else through their darkness and their depression and their life sucks and it's never going to get any better. And whatever other darkness comes after that, some people have suicidal thoughts. My thoughts were a little bit down a different line, if I can just be honest and heavy at the beginning of this podcast. My, <laughs> my thoughts were more like, I would fantasize about hurting my dad. I would mm. fantasize about if he does this to me, I'm going to do this to him or people at school that are treating me bad. It was, I wasn't actually violent, but I had violent fantasies. Do you think uh, that gave you like this sense of like control at a time where you were out of control? Is that like? Yeah, it was almost just like rage. You yeah, know, it yeah. was like, I, I was not a violent person. And I don't know if I ever would have done that. So I'm not saying I was, I would never would have gotten a gun and yeah, gone to yeah. school or something like sure. that. It was more like, if somebody does this to me, I'm going to blow up, you know? So, so I had that sort of 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. For it's still dark, but I had that sort of center of well, I'm not going to go just hurt people. But if somebody would push me one more time, it you know I'm just going to lose it. You know, it was that sort of darkness. And Christianity, my relationship with Jesus, Christian music, all of that really saved me. And so I want to do that for other people. And that's my story. That's why I do what I do. Do you feel like when your mom passed, did that strengthen your relationship with God? Did it make you question God's existence? What did that do in mm. your in your faith at that period? Yeah, I would say this. I would say through it all, absolutely my relationship with God is what saved me. It became much more deeper than it ever been. I never questioned the existence of God. Maybe I'll, I'll nuance it like this, <laughs> if you don't mind. I never questioned his existence my whole life. Yeah. I mean, I grew up believing in God. It just made sense to me. I would go outside, you look at the world, the order, the creator, or the fact that everything works and the sun comes up every single day. Yeah and that the earth is exactly where it needs to be so that we don't freeze to death or burn to death. All of that, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm sold. There's yep. a God. <laughs> yep. But I will say that I got to a point when I would just be like, all right, God, I know you're real. I just don't think you care. I just don't think you're listening. You know, I know you're real, but I'm a little ticked off. You know, this ain't going good. And it was through that that I began to know Jesus as a friend and that's really what changed it for me. I, I knew Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Love it. That's so important. It's the most important thing. But the more you read the Bible, you begin to find out Jesus isn't just my Lord. Yeah, I, I obey him. I'm submitted to him, but also he's a friend. The Bible says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Bible says that God is a refuge in my times of trouble. That's absolutely amazing. You know, that all of a sudden gives a, a little bit of a different I don't say a different picture, but a deeper picture that God is a father. He's going to take care of me. That's awesome. So yeah. I, that, I came through that and I got to, close to Jesus and I began to understand more what life was all about, you know? Well, I think there's a maybe a misunderstanding sometimes in belief of God that if you wrestle with the with God and what he's doing, you are therefore sinning. Like it is a bad thing to wrestle with God, but I think that's a, mis like a misrepresentation of what's going on. Like, I mean, Jacob wrestled with God, maybe physically. Uh, David, the <laughs> Psalms are full of, of David wrestling with mm. God saying like, what are you doing here? Like, where do you, where do you mm. see that line between not trusting God, but still wrestling with the idea of like, I don't understand, mm. I'm confused. Like, where do you see that? I think it's a great question. And it's probably, we could probably talk the whole podcast yeah. <laughs> on it. But let's just say short version is this. God already knows your thoughts anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, he knows what yeah. you're going through. So it, it's not so much that you're like, if I don't say this to God, he's never going to know. No. You know? <laughs> Good luck, you know. <laughs> he knows that. And I think that he desires a relationship with us. So I think that it's good. It's good to wrestle with God. It's good to ask those questions. At the same time, I think it's being honest to say, it is sin to doubt God, to say, I don't trust you. Well, that is actually sin. It's sure. not like you want to beat somebody yeah. up. You're <laughs> sinning. You're doubting God. But it actually is. It's not. That's not a right relationship with God. That's not faith. Faith is the opposite of, of doubt. So the questioning thing, I don't think God's scared of questioning. I think he's like, yeah, ask me the questions and then come to me, come to my word, open up the Bible. I'm going to show you because once you understand the truth, you're going to have peace and God wants you to have peace. And so the wrestling is good and it's supposed to end up in a peaceful place where you trust God more than you did. And so, you know, my mom used to tell me before she died, she would say, John, if I die, she had cancer. If I die, you can't be mad at God. 
mm. because God is always good. And I would think God is always good. Okay. So God's good. If she dies, I'm trying to think, how can that possibly be the case? And she would always say, because the Bible says all things work together for the good of those who love Christ according to his purpose. So I'd say, okay, I'm going to remember that. And I would try to hold on to that. God, I know you're good, but I don't feel like it tonight. Yeah. I just don't feel like it. What's the deal? I'll ask the age old question, the probably the number one question that uh, a non-believer will ask a believer is like, well, sure. why does bad things happen? Why did your mom pass? Why <laughs> yeah. do bad things happen? Solve that age old dilemma. Yeah, right well, here. <laughs> you know, what? it's actually a really easy answer. And if you can come to terms with it, it changes your life uh, because <laughs> the answer is simply this bad things happen to good people because there are no good people. <laughs> That's the answer. Now you might be, well, I'm a good person. Well, compared to whom? Compared to Jesus, I don't think so. Jesus is the standard. He never sinned. So he he fulfilled the commandments of God perfectly. Have you done that? I haven't, you know. <laughs> I know for a fact that I have treated people terribly. I used I just said it. I used to fantasize about wanting to hurt people that treated me bad at school. If I was to think deeply about it, I could probably be honest and say, I probably treated them bad too. I probably treated my dad terribly too, you know. I think that the answer is this, bad things happen because of sin. And if you can wrap your head around the fact that sin is in the world and every single person is born into it, everybody knows what it's like to be selfish and to think, how can I have my own gain even if it hurts someone else? Everybody can relate to that at one point or another. Most any parent, I've never met a parent that wouldn't agree with this. You have a daughter, you yeah, said, I, I have two kids. kids, you have two, so yeah. do I. So. Every parent knows what it's like to have a bad day, come home and treat your poor kid like trash. Yep. You know, you take it out and then they yep. ask one thing and you're stressed out and you're like, I've had enough of it. And then later you're like, why did I, I just became my own dad. You know, yeah, yeah. everybody's done that. Why do bad things happen to those little kids? Because you're a jerk. You're just like me. So once you can wrap your head around that, all of a sudden you understand that the gospel of Christ is so glorious. Jesus came to set us free from that sin. And death shows us that something is absolutely wrong. There's something really bad going on. And it's the fact that every one of us is dying a little more every day. You're decaying. You're going to die. The world is bad. People are suffering. People are starving to death. In America, we don't starve to death typically, but around the world, people starve to death. They hurt each other. There's so much terrible stuff. It's all wrong. And if you can accept that it's wrong, then you accept that Jesus made a way to make the wrong things right. Then all of a sudden you have this amazing peace and you go, oh, my life isn't actually about having everything that I want. My life is about having a relationship with my creator. And when I have a relationship with my creator, everything else falls in place. And you have this amazing thing called peace. You can sleep at night without being angry, without fantasizing about hurting people yeah. or whatever your darkness is, you know? Yeah. That's amazing, man. Let's shift. Where, where did you meet your wife? Where, where did she come into the picture? My wife is from Wisconsin. I'm from Tennessee, as I said. My wife's dad is a pastor of a church that was sort of a sister church to my church in, in Memphis. And so my pastor would say, uh, when I was in college, I, it was a new church that I started going to. He said, hey, I know somebody else that also do, does what you do, meaning she plays in a band. And she believes that music can help change people's lives, you know, yada, yada. He's like, I think you guys would be friends. She's going to come down and visit. And he didn't have any idea that we would like each other. He just thought, oh, that's really cool. I bet you guys would be friends. You should talk about music. <laughs> and I remember telling him after we met, 
Corey came down. Uh, her, her name's Corey. So we met, talked, really hit it off. And I remember saying to my pastor, I said, I think I kind of like her, you know, and, and he said, she would never like you. <laughs> I was like, dang, it's cold, man. Uh, he's like, no, it's just that she's really, you know, she's deep and she's intellectual. <laughs> she's quiet. <laughs> and you're, you know, that was it. You know, that was it. <laughs> you, know. you know, I'm like, yeah, okay. I do know. Yeah. But the funny thing is, I mean, I, I think it was the opposites attract, you know, so she's intellectual, academic. I'm actually not academic. I'm, I, it's not that I'm not a deep thinker, but I, I did terribly in school. Fa I was failing out of college. Thank God he called me to do music. I was like, okay, God, I can either do music or fail out of, out of college. There's no way I'm <laughs> going to pass college, you know. It just kind of worked out like that. I think that she liked that I'm crazy, I'm loud, I'm, I'm extroverted, and I'm, and I'm kind of just nuts yeah. sometimes. And she likes that because she thinks she's too serious, and so we kind of go together. What do you love most about your wife? She's really good at things that I'm not. She's extremely faithful. She's like the most faithful person you'll ever meet. And maybe because of some of my upbringing, my mom's death and, and just feeling that at any time in your life, like all the ties that bind can just be set up. You know, my coping mechanism was like, you know what? Nothing is going to get me down. I am going to thrive and nobody's, you know, you're treating me bad. I don't need you. You know, you're out of my life. I can do it on my own. And that has helped me thrive, to be honest. It's helped me succeed in life because I I never saw myself as a victim. I never saw myself as poor me, you know. In fact, I, I got a funny thing I'll say about that in a second. But she is extremely faithful. She's like, no, if you say you're going to do it, you do it. You do not break your, your oath. You know, you do not break your word. That's like pathetic. And I was like, that is pathetic. You're right. I, I, never, I hadn't considered that, you know? So I remember after my mom died, well, I'll, I'll wait, we'll get into that later. I, I'll save okay. it. And then later I'll say, this is what I was going to say earlier. And you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay. All right. So where did Skillet come from? Where did the name come from? But also the, just the concept. Was it you and your wife together at the beginning? Did she join later? Talk us through the early years of that. Skillet was, it, I was going to a, a, actually a really small church in Memphis. This was a 1993, 94. I was in, going to college and there was a lot of Christian bands starting. It was really weird in this one area in Memphis. I mean, there must've been nine, 10, 11 Christian rock bands, which is really weird. Yeah. Um, it was just a thing happening. And so all those bands started playing at this one particular church that wasn't big. I began going to that church. And so eventually my pastor said, Hey, I like your band, but he said, there's a guitar player from another band that I know, and I like their band too, but I like you <laughs> and the guitar player from the other band more than I like both of your bands. <laughs> what do you think about starting a side project? We take, we take you out. We you write some songs together. We find a drummer. There's all these Christian bands. Find a drummer. So it, the idea was sort of like a super group, except yeah. none of our original groups were super, but yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the idea. Take him. And he said, yeah, I'll do it. And and he's like, who knows? And be like throwing everything in a skillet, you know, and cooking up something mm. new from different ingredients. And somebody said, dude, you should call a skillet. That'd be funny. And I was like, that would be funny. <laughs> that would be funny. It won't last. So who cares? I don't care what you call it. And so he called it skillet. It's 27 years later, yeah. uh, and I'm the only original mem member left. Cor so my wife, Corey, was originally not in the band, and she joined about a year later. So all this was happening at once. We started the group, started touring. We all this, we started recording our first record with about 
five months after we started. It just like clicked. I couldn't believe it. A, a small independent label was like, we really like this. Started recording an album. I was dating Corey at the same time. Album came out in November of 96. I got married four months later and my wife was on the road and stuff. And then we started changing our sound, started innovating, going, what do we want to do? Because the 90s was a time of, of turmoil for rock music. It was changing so drastically. It had a major change in the early 90s with the Seattle rock that we yeah. were talking about, which you know about from yeah. where you come from. So that rock was an upheaval for the metal and rock scene. It was shifting, but it's actually a short-lived, I mean, grunge, we called it grunge at the time. Grunge ruled the world for about four years. But then after that, it was gone very, very quickly. And it was time for... People were saying rock is dead. It's never coming back. And then there was a new <laughs> shift in rock music when you had very, very dark, I would call it dark uh, metal bands. For music listeners out there, with I don't know if they care about this or not, but I would say bands like Korn, yep. Korn Marilyn Manson, yep. you had Nine Inch Nails. So then you had what we would call in industrial, which would be Manson and stuff like White Zombie, yep. Rob Zombie, Ministry. So you had this very hard edge music coming. All these things were changing. And the 90s was a dark time. And if anybody didn't grow up in the 90s and you don't know what I mean, I'm always a fan of saying the 80s was typified by, and then you name, you name the records and you name the films. You know what I yeah, mean? That's sure. how you know yeah. what the 80s is like. So 80s, of course, is Thriller for Michael Jackson, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's how you do it. So in the 90s, if you if, if you wanted to pick out films that typify it, I would say Fight Club yeah. and American Psycho. Yeah. You take those films, you take Korn and Marilyn Manson, and you, you begin to get an idea of the nihilism and the self-harm and the rage of the 90s, ending with Limp Biscuit and some of the, like, I want to break something, I want to hurt somebody, you know, F the world kind of stuff. That was a very tumultuous time. Yeah. We just got into a place that I never talk about on podcasts. So that's kind of fun. I love it. I love it, man. So you said something in the book, and I'm going to I'm gonna probably butcher the exact quote here, but you said at one point, just randomly, I don't know, two-thirds of the book, you said, while I was building the business of Skillet, blah, 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 blah. And I stopped there, and I was like, wait, building the business, like Skillet? And I'm like, oh. And I don't know why this thought had never occurred to me in my, in my life. It was probably an offensive statement, but I never thought of making a band as yeah. a business. And it was the first time, like, those synapses joined. I'm like, oh, like... <laughs> You are an entrepreneur. You mm. built a business from the ground up, from nothing, mm. and you made it thrive. You made it a thing. So I would love to, you know, a lot of my audience is, is business owners. So I want to peel back a couple of the lessons you learned during that period. Sure. So first of all, as you were building it, how confident were you that like, oh, I'm, this is my career. I'm going to do it. Come hell or high water. Like, this is my thing. Or is it like, well, we'll see if it goes and if it, it just happened to, and so you're more of a product of your survivor bias. Like, did you just happen to make it? Or did you always know you were going to make it? Mm. What a great question. I love it. And you know what? You're not the only one that doesn't think of bands as a business. Yeah. No bands think of themselves as business <laughs> until, they, until they're eating ramen noodles on the floor yep. without any furniture and they can't pay the bills. And they're like, oh, oh yeah. we got to make money. Yeah. It's really true. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I laughed at the idea of me being an entrepreneur. I already told you I'm not academic. <laughs> I'm failing out of school. I just want to play music. I want to tell people about Jesus. I mean, I was just like, I don't care about money and that doesn't matter yeah. to me. And I don't even care about the business. I don't want to do that. I just never thought of myself like that and didn't want to. 
And I had a real change of heart, and I think this is really interesting. It's it's so down the, it, it, pertinent to this podcast. I think people find it really interesting. All of a sudden in 2003, so this is, what is that, from 96 to 2003, it's about seven years into the business, eight years. All of a sudden we got nominated for a Grammy for, in the Christian Music Award. I was shocked. I was like, what? what? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> we went to the Grammy Awards, and we were not that successful. I mean, we were paying bills, driving a van. You know what I mean? We, we had, well, I won't get into that. Anyway, we, we, <laughs> we, we were trying to make it work. I mean, yeah. we just, and it was very difficult. No money. 2003, went to the Grammy Awards. Actually, 2003 was, was a, a pivotal year because we signed a contract with a label called Lava. Lava Records was a smaller imprint that went through Atlantic Records. In other words, we went from being on a small Christian indie label to a mainstream secular group uh, label. We were on the same as Matchbox 20 mm. or Kid Rock, if people know who Kid Rock is. We were on the same label. It was a huge step. We did get a sum of money for doing that. Before then, I never had any money. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're gonna actually be able to pay you a little bit of bills. And that was the first year we ever made any money. I wrote about it in the book. Yeah, we yeah. made $8,000 yeah, that year. Yeah. And I was getting a call that <laughs> we had to pay several thousand dollars in taxes. I was like, taxes? What are you talking? Yeah. We never made any money. <laughs> so I was like, I don't understand. Then we went to the Grammy Awards. Yeah. And I'm looking at this. It was the year that Kanye West had just broken on the scene, funny enough. And he was singing his song, Jesus Walks. And I was looking at this. And I, I had the realization that all of these people here, some of them are much more talented than me. Some of them are probably not as talented as me. Some of them deserve to be more popular than they are. Some of them, I don't know if they deserve to be. I don't really. In other words, it's not actually like the person with the most God gift, yep. amazing talent goes to the top. And it, that's not how this business works. It all of a sudden became, I realized that Hollywood is only like two blocks it's not actually that big of a, yep. everybody knows each other. Everybody works with the same people. Everybody's working with the same songwriters and the same movie directors. And I've got just as much of a chance as anybody else. Maybe I should change the way I think about this. And so I started saying, I need to run this like a business. I never considered that before and how stupid of me. And so we began saying, what would it take for us to get to that level? And if you're going to do that, you got to be willing to have somebody say, John, you know, or like you said, you wrote a song. You got to be willing to say, hey, what do you think about my song? And yep. me say, it sucks. Yep. And you say, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. It's actually really bad. But keep trying, <laughs> brother. Keep trying. And then you got to be willing to put your neck on the line, stand behind your art, and then go, okay, what would you do to make this song better? And then that's when we began doing that. So the next album, I began working with a producer who's also a songwriter. It's the first time I ever gave percentages away for my yeah. songs when he would help make them better. And I remember saying to my manager, I said, hey, this is 2006. That was 10 years into the career. I had a child. I just had my second. I said, I'm giving money away. I'm giving percentages away. I don't even know this is going to work. And we're going for broke. We're doing everything we can do. We've got to make it or we're going to have to do a new business because I can't feed my family, yeah. you know? And so we took that leap of faith and we listened to other people say, it's just not good enough. But if we try, we can do it. That was the record that broke us through, the platinum record. And still no radio success, though. So we can get to that, too. In other words, it broke through on a ground level. It did not break through on, on a mainstream. Radio did not play it. Radio did not want to play it. It was all touring it, but it clicked, and we sold a lot of records. What were some of the songs on that one? 
Whispers in the Dark, okay, yeah. Comatose, it was yeah. called. Yeah, yeah. And it was three years later because that, that, that was a big album, but without any mainstream radio success. And so the industry was like, how is this band so big? Who are they? We don't even know who they are. Yeah. And so then on the next album, all of a sudden they were paying attention and, and that record was the biggest one we released. Mm. How did you balance? You got two young kids at the time. You're trying to grow the business. You're touring constantly, I'm sure. You're writing songs. How did you balance being a good present father with trying to grow the business? Yeah, that was really difficult. And I don't always feel that I did a great job, to be honest. You know, I'm a dude, so I'm like, Probably a lot of other dudes listening. <laughs> We're driven. Yeah. We find, rightly or wrongly, we find our identity in our success yeah. or in our failures. And uh, that's, an, again, we could talk about that for a whole uh, episode, which we won't. <laughs> but we do. You know, we find some sort of gratification for, did I succeed according to what my goals of success actually are? So I think feeling at times that, Maybe I'm not providing a life for my kids that I that I want to. They're growing up in a bus that keeps breaking down <laughs> over and over on the side of the road. It's the middle of the winter. The bus is broken down. There's no heat. We're waiting for hours in the middle of nowhere. My kids are freezing to death. Am I being a terrible father? There was like all these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for me, it was an issue of praying, getting counsel from my pastors. Me and my wife would talk about expectations. And we, we finally began a process that was this, okay, we both can't be absolutely present with the kids and absolutely present with the business and absolutely do the interviews. And so we had to break up responsibilities. So I said, okay, here's what we do then. I'm the talker anyway. I do the press. I'm the face. I'm the voice of this. I do all the interviews. You don't do the interviews. Even if they ask for the full band, we just say, actually, Corey can't. She's got to do the kids stuff. You do the kids stuff so that they're not being raised by a nanny. We did have a nanny that would help with school and things, but so you're there to do those things. So we, we just kind of, you have your jobs. I have my job. Years later, I got better about saying, uh, budgeting up my time. And I, you, I didn't stay up late in the bus playing video games, which is what most yeah, <laughs> rock yeah. bands do. Well, the, 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 the PG rated yeah, things yeah. they do are video <laughs> games. And I don't do that because I got to get with my kids and I do all the things that you do. Four to five is when I hang out with, with my, my kids. We go and we throw the football, usually like in a hallway at a venue, you know, an arena, yeah, yeah. or we go outside and my son would always want to play Batman. Live roles, by the way. So we'd have to be <laughs> Batman and the Joker. Yep. And we go do that for an hour. And if somebody's saying, we, you've got to do this interview, billboard called, you got to, I can't. I got four to five with my kid. I'm giving you everything else I have. All right, you have the other 23 hours. You don't have this hour and that's just the way we do it, you know, and we just stuck to it. And I think that that's also where your biblical values come in or your values. If you're not a Christian, wherever your value system comes in, in order to, to say, okay, then what are my goals? You know, I want to be a better father more than I want to be rich. <laughs> so, so if I miss that, you know what I mean? I miss yeah. the interview. You got to pay bills, but you don't have to keep going to the next level over and over and over. So at some point you can say enough is enough. And we worked through that. I think we do a good job of that the last seven years. I think we've done a, a pretty good job of that. And just so people know, my kids now are 21 and 18, just to give people a perspective. Yeah. So they went there. What would they say about your parenting? Like, do they look back like, oh man, that was, <laughs> well, do they regret having to be on the road all the time? Or do they think they had a pretty cool childhood? I mean, you, you don't know anything different when you're young, right? Yeah, like it's just true. your life. But now yeah. that they've got some perspective, what do you think they'd say? 
we just have such a great relationship. So my daughter's getting married in a few months. I told That's you cool, this. So yeah. she's 21. She's getting married. So to answer the question by saying her, my wife is her maid of honor. Mm. So she has her mom as her maid of honor. That's you awesome. know? So our kid, we're very, very close. Um, I think growing up on the road, did the opposite of what I was concerned about. I think it's going to be ticked off. Yeah. I didn't get to play little league. Yeah. I didn't get to do this, but I think because of that, we were such a family and we made such time for them that they, they grew up with adults as their friends. So even at age 11 and 12 years old, for instance, we would go tour with secular bands, sometimes Christian bands, sometimes metal bands yeah. that people would, would laugh at. They's like, you guys hung out, you know, your kids hung out with you know, Nickelback, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, they would hang out, you know, I don't know. Sometimes these band, they would, they would talk to my kids when they were 11, 12 about philosophy, Christian theology, politics, you know, and so my son would be like, I remember my son saying to one of them, the issue of, that is the issue of abortion had come up with, with a band we were touring with. And it was a fine conversation. One of them, the guy said, well, I just think that it's just not right to tell a woman what she can or cannot do with her body. And my son was 12 at the time. And he was like, you know, I don't remember what he said. Do you think that he had, well, do you think that so-and-so, so-and-so? And, and, and the guy was like, well, no, I don't think that. And then my son was like, that's because your worldview isn't consistent. If you believe that, that you don't have the right to do that, then you also don't have, you know, it was something, it was probably yeah. about slavery or something. Yeah. So I think that what it comes down to is that, do you believe that every individual has a God-given uh, rights or do people only have rights because men decide they have rights? And you're seeing this, <laughs> you know, adult who's just woken up having coffee, like, holy crap, I wasn't ready for that. Yeah. I don't want to talk about that at, at breakfast. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I think that that's what my kids would say. I mean, certainly they would say there were things they missed, but also, you know, my daughter had her 15th birthday in France, yeah. you know, because we were touring. So she was with us and there are amazing things that happened and yeah. you do what you got to do. There's a great story. I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but it, I read it in a business book once about this chess prodigy guy who decides he wants to make all of his children chess prodigies. And so he, from the time they're born, he's teaching them chess. They don't do any activities outside of like chess. That's all they do. Chess all day, all day, all day <laughs> for years. I mean, everything in their house, every day he'd play with them. They play each other and they all grew up that way. All three kids became chess prodigies. And they asked him later about like these three kids. Uh, and they looked at them, they interviewed them about how wow. messed up their childhood must have been. All of them turned out to be super well-adjusted. All of them turned mm. out to be, besides just geniuses with chess, but they were just like good, solid people with no regrets, no uh, problems with their childhood. And I love that story because it really illustrates that what we think is normal, like your kid has to be in Little League, it has to go to public school from about nine to five. Mm. You have to do this, you have to do that. And that's the only way you make a normal kid. In reality, just like intention, I think, a parent's att intention mm. and attention with their kid, your kid's going to most likely turn out okay yeah. uh, versus the prescribed American, you know, That path. is a really great point. I agree. I agree with that. And you, you look at it on in farming communities yeah. and things. It's almost like what I think is missing, in, in my opinion, when, when kids are not well-adjusted, really seems to be the the intactness of, of the home. Yeah. If the, if the home is intact and parents that love the kids, spend time with the kids, and they are doing what families are kind of supposed to do together. In other words, the household is not just run by a parent or both parents. The household is, is 
I mean, you're all kind of in this together. You train your kids to be a part of running the household. They're not in charge of the household by God, (laughs) but they are a part of this. And you see that in farming communities. You see it in communities where they're family-owned businesses. The kids just go, well, that's what you have to do for the business. Uh, So you, but you're doing it together. And so now the family is defining the social roles, rewards and punishments, yeah. expectations. Here's the expectations. When you abide by the expectations, you, you're living in peace and you're getting the rewards, the benefits of doing that. And then there are punishments and, and uncomfortable situations when you're like, well, I don't, I don't want to live your life. Well, and, and I'm going to do what I want to do. Now you have that friction. So what is missing is, and in, in we've let America, whether it's as you say, the American dream, whether it's the state, whether it's just a secular culture, whether it's Hollywood, whoever it is, them, whoever them is, they have dictated what is normal and what is moral and the way that things should be, which actually, funny enough, even the idea of public school is actually a secular idea. Now, it was the Puritans that began the first schools, but they weren't public schools. They were basically schools to, they were Christian-oriented schools to teach kids how to read and this and the other so that they could understand God's good world and the creator. So it was different. That would be more like a Christian education. The idea of a secularized public education is actually a socialist idea so that you can educate children into a love for the state Mm -hmm. and a devotion for the state to tell them what is moral and what is good and how they are to live. So the state tells them where their place is in life. Well, guess where their place in life is according to the state? Basically, you are not an individual. You are a part of the collective here. And we're going to teach you to be a good citizen as defined by the commies, in my opinion. So anyway, all that to say, (laughs) when the state is doing that, well, all of a sudden you have kids totally depressed, medicated, anxiety. And by the way, in the 2020s, the highest levels of teen suicide we've ever had and depression and medication. So not only are they depressed, they are highly medicated in a way that we've never even known. It wasn't even possible in the past. It wasn't even something we thought we could do. So even with all the medication that is supposed to help, still the most anxiety. So why is that happening? Because they're all in public school and they're all in little league and they're all doing all the programs. I would say it's because there is not the intact home life. We don't have any communal values and the home is not teaching it. So that's a really long answer, but you that's just great. you just ticked one of the things I'm really I'm passionate <laughs> about. So I just went off on a tangent there. Well, let me, let me just ask you then bluntly, like, do you believe homeschooling is better for Christians than public schooling? Should Christians homeschool their kids? Short answer. Well, I shouldn't say yes, because that might be a little too drastic. But let's answer it like this. I do not think Christian parents should send their kids to public school. I think there are alternatives. So it doesn't have to be homeschooling. Now, I don't want to say that I think it's sin to do it. So I want to be really clear. I'm not saying (laughs) it's sinful. Lots of my friends do and lots of my church leaders do as well. So I'm absolutely not sin. I'm saying in my opinion, I don't think that's a good idea. And a lot of the people that that would still say, I think that's a little too extreme, John. I think it's because they probably don't know what their kids are being taught. You know, I I think that once you see it, you're like, oh my Lord, this is so bad. I have non-Christian friends who are coming to me in the last year, really since COVID, COVID changed it because they they got aware of what their kids were being taught. Mm. And they've called me going, where is this coming from? They're like, you know, I'm not into the Jesus stuff, but this isn't what I was taught, you know? And so I think there are alternatives, homeschooling, Christian classical education, those, those schools 
are popping up all over. Yeah. You need to look for one of those because they have great curriculums and they, they teach you to understand God's good world. And that's what schooling really should be about, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. We, uh, you know, last year, we, the last couple of years we've homeschooled this year, we're homeschooling, but we're homeschooling with four, five other families uh, and their kids. We have nine little kids that show up every day. Oh yeah, yeah. And then we have a tutor that we hired to help like kind of facilitate yes. a lot of stuff. But we're still homeschooling the kids one. And it's been, and we just split the cost of that tutor between all the families. So we're homeschooling without the, without the, you know, the fact that my wife doesn't spend 40 hours a week sitting in a classroom yes. with one kid. I love it. I've also found that like my kids will pay 10 times more attention to that tutor or when there's other kids around than if it's just my wife and my kid or me and my kid. Right. Like, they're just like bouncing off the walls. They, they, they just, it's worked out so well. And a lot of people look at homeschooling and say, well, yeah, it must be nice to be rich to be able to afford homeschooling. Mm. But there are ways to make it cheaper, uh, oh, more cost yeah. effective by doing things like that. If you don't mind, I, I never talk about this on a podcast. Yeah, I've please. literally, we, I've never talked about this. So <laughs> good, but but I am passionate about it, and so not to keep going down a tangent, but the question you have to ask yourself is: I don't want people to think I'm being judgmental. It's a question. If the shoe fits, I don't know. Pray yeah. on it. Think yeah. on it. If your kid's 18, 19, 20, 25, whatever, and your kid has become a Marxist, uh, let's just say yeah. it has an ugly view of the world, yep. or is some sort of radical gender theorist or something like that, or comes home, here's a good one, comes home and tells you, say, dad, I know you don't know it. Oh, you're just talking from your privilege because you yeah. are a racist. You don't know you're a racist, but you are. And it's disgusting or whatever. Yeah. Or they're indoctrinated into some sort of sexual craziness. I don't even know. We don't have to go down. We don't have to explain what we, that means. We, <laughs> um, sexual craziness. What amount of money would you give yeah. to change that? Would you give a thousand bucks? Would you give 5,000? Would you say, all right, my retirement fund, maybe it's not amazing. Maybe I can't retire early. It's yeah. not what I want it to be. Would I take $10,000 out of my retirement fund to go back in history and have paid for the homeschool curriculum? Would I have done that? Everybody would do it. If yeah. it's possible, it may not be possible for everybody. Yeah. The question is, is just like, what is the priority going to be? And we have been trained in the American way of thinking, which I love America, so I'm not dissing it, but America way, the American dream is not synonymous with biblical parenting, yeah. you know? So I would just say, is it worth it? Could you do it? What could you sacrifice so that you could do that for your kids? And then if you still say, I don't really think it's worth it, I would say, well, just ask your kids what they're learning at school. Find out. Yeah. It's dark. Yeah. 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 I heard a, a stat the other day, uh, and I don't know how legit this is, but it, it basically said like, I think it was like 33% of all teenage girls now are identifying as gender, you know, fluid. Yes. It's like, that's a third. Mm -hmm. Now, even forget the argument of whether or not it's natural and forget Christian stuff and all that for a minute. There's no possible way that 33% of all young girls are mistaken or they were raised yes. wrong, right? That's just not, so there's something culturally going on and it's happened in other civilizations, other even countries in the past few years where it's, it's risen and then, and dropped. So there's something going on in America right now. So just knowing that, like go to the, the sexual confusion, mm -hmm. if I, if my kid has a 33% chance, if I send them to public school of that happening, I will do anything in my power to make sure that they're not being indoctrinated <laughs> by weirdness. Absolutely. And yeah. and I think even as we, not that we are now, but even as we pivot into yeah. talking about my book and whatnot, yeah. one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is this 
woke worldview, yeah. and we can get into that about what that even to. what that even means. But what parents have to understand is not just that they're being taught that there are 32 genders or 92 or infinity genders. It's not even that they're being taught that these things exist or that we should even think that it's, you know, quote unquote normal or whatever. They're actually pushing it as a, it makes you a better person. Mm -hmm. And we can get into that, why that is. But if you're a kid going to school and you are told that if you are what they call cisgender, if people know what cisgender, all cisgender means is that my, the way that I view myself, that's what gender is. That's how they define it anyway. The way I view myself as a man or a woman, which is called gender identity versus my actual biology, meaning I, I have male genitalia. So if your sex and your gender identity coincide, then you are called cisgender. Okay. In other words, you're boring. You're obviously a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see yeah. you got a huge beard. You're a man. You know. Did you, I, just, did you, just, did you just gender me? I, I just gender. I just <laughs> yes, yeah, because I didn't yeah. ask you your pronoun, so I may have, I may have triggered you. And, you know, dead named you I'm, or something I'm, I'm like triggered. that. But yeah. So, but the idea is, you're a man, and you say, yeah, I know that I'm a man. And, well, you're boring. Yep. And not only you're not special. Yeah. You're not special. Yeah. But not only are you not special, you're actually in a class that is privileged and is hurting other people yeah. who are not privileged. So in other words, you don't know it, but you're hurting people. Yeah. You're oppressing people. What do you think that does to kids? Not only does it confuse them, it makes them want to be special. Yep. It makes them not want to be boring. I don't want to be a boring, just heterosexual, cisgendered white dude, and, yep. you know, a white chick and whatever it may be. But not only that, it tells you you're being a bad person. And there's an easy fix. If you don't want to be a bad person, well, there's an easy fix. Mm. Just be gender fluid. Yep. That's what's happening. We can get into that or not. I'd love to. You know, I, I want to I wanna pull out a quote you said in the book that I thought was <laughs> pretty well written. You said, all I wanted to do was play music in peace. But since that is no longer an option, I will play music in war. I love Woo! that. Right? Isn't that a good line? I Man. think so. Yeah. Ray, let's do it. <laughs> why, why, is, why is playing music in peace no longer an option? Yeah, I mean, look, I've told you in the 90s. So, you know, going back to what we talked about, here I am in a band. I want to tell people about Jesus. Yeah. The rest of the culture is dark. I already said that, the 90s, nihilism. Yeah. If people remember the 90s or if they weren't there, some of the songs on the radio, that were great music, by the way, awesome music, <laughs> awesome songs. Part of the reason they were so good is because they were so angsty. Yeah. They, they were full of rage. Yeah. I want something to break. It was like F you and F the system. And it that's what made it appealing to people, right? No, it's not my water off. I got so excited about that metal. And um, the point is, is for a band like Skillet, we weren't talking about standing up for against gender confusion for kids. We were talking about abortion. We were just talking about love. Yeah. It was such a, it was like, oh yeah, everybody else is singing about hate and anger and wanting something to break. And I'm singing about, this amazing hope I found in Jesus. There is hope. I know I know you're going through a hard time. I've been there too, but I had hope because there's a God who exists, who loves you and you can make it, you know, or a lot of our songs were just, maybe you didn't even know they were Christian songs. They were just positive. And the positivity of Skillet was just like, it was like complete opposite of what was happening in the world. I was just playing music in peace. I'm telling people you can make it another day while the rest of the world was just like, if at all. <laughs> and uh, and that was playing music in peace. 
Now we're living in a time when the world is saying really evil things, but they believe that it's moral. So in the 90s, nobody was saying that it was moral to want to break something. It was moral to want to hurt somebody. It was moral to burn the city down. They were saying, no, I'm burning it down because I don't give a crap. It was Fight Club. Yeah. I don't give a crap. Burn it down because it doesn't matter. And because all these people are liars anyway, screw them. I'm going to show you how angry I am by doing something violent. It wasn't, I'm going to show you how moral I am by doing something violent. That's what's changed. And I live in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So Ooh, yeah. three blocks from my house, the entire city was burned down in 2020 by BLM riots. Um, that cry on that people always say, um, fiery, but mostly peaceful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> three blocks from my house. I mean, I, like, I can see it from where I live. So that was, we're burning it down because we're more moral than you. Well, that now we, we got to speak. Because I've always been about speaking love and truth. Well, that's the opposite of the world. So now we got to stand up for what we believe. That's why all of a sudden playing in skillet is no longer being the nice guy, being the positive. I'm still saying the positive message, which is love your neighbor and don't burn their house down. It's the same message. Yeah. But now it looks like anger and hate because the world has lost its freaking mind. Mm. Was the book written wimpy, weak, and woke? Was that written for Christians, for the Christian world, for the church, mm. or for everybody at uh, Mass? Yeah, so for, so wimpy, weak, and woke. That is a title that I did not know was going to trigger so many people. I, I mean, I knew that it was, <laughs> I knew they'd be like, whoa, yeah. you know, I get it. I know some people, I did not have any idea it would trigger the kind of angst it did. The pushback was absolutely unreal. Uh, and I should tell people, the only place you can get the book is my website, johnlcooper.com, unless you want the Kindle version, which you can get at Amazon. It's really twofold. So let me say this, Wimpy, Weak, and Woke. It is not about calling somebody a weakling. And I think people were responding to the title. And I, and I kept saying online, this is not about calling you a wimp, calling you weak. You're a sissy. That's okay. not what this is. <laughs> Wimpy, weak, and woke is an ideology. It is a worldview. It is a belief system that is destroying the world. It's destroying the West, and it's going to make your life terrible. And it ha it is making America terrible. And, and so who do I write it for? It's twofold. It's written for anybody. You don't have to be a Christian to understand that this is a worldview that's destructive. It's a wimpy, weak, and woke worldview. But it's also specifically saying for Christian people, you are letting this wimpy, weak, and woke worldview into your faith, and it cannot come into the faith because it, it is actually an opposing re religion. It's an opposing force. So you can't take the ideology and then synthesize it with cre Christianity to make a new kind of acceptable Christianity to the secular culture of the 2020s. It's not going to happen. They are opposing each other. One of them is going to win. And I think that the Christian worldview should win. It built America. It built the West. It's worked for centuries. It is There are eternal principles that do not change. And if we let this go, it's going to mean the destruction of America. It already has meant the destruction of America. It, the subtitle of the book, How Truth Can Save America from Utopian Destruction. What's so wrong with utopia? I mean, you you, you rail against <laughs> utopia quite a bit. And I did read the book. It's super, for a guy who says they're not uh, very academic, it's a meaty book. I mean, it's, mm. I don't know, what, 400 pages, something like that. It's a right. meaty book of theology and psychology, all sorts mm. of, it's, it's phenomenal. I really, really actually enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. 
Yeah. Like, where's that? Where's like, Utopia? Utopia. So, Why do you rail against it so much in the book? Yeah. I, and I think the reason I started delving into philosophy, I've always liked philosophy. That's the only thing I did well in school at. Mm. So I'm the worst mathematician God ever created. Okay. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I like philosophy because those things make sense to me. And I'm, I'm sick of, you know what I'm sick of, man? I'm sick of people saying confusing things on purpose so that people don't know what they mean. Mm. I can't stand it because I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not an intellectual. Yeah. I'm like, hold on. That doesn't make sense. You can't say that and say that at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, that doesn't make sense together. And I keep asking people and I don't get any answers, but the feeling I get is that they just want to tear America down. And they don't care what they have to say. They're, mm. They'll say anything they need to say to tear it down. And I want to get to the bottom of why that is. And that's why I started doing this in philosophy. So what is utopia? Utopia is basically a concept that is just the perfect society, the perfect world. Everybody has everything that they need. Everybody has a quality of outcomes, not a quality of opportunity, not saying that we're all equal under the law. Everybody has the same stuff. And nobody is hungry. Why? Because everybody has the same stuff. And in that world of utopia, it was always believed to be that nobody's going to commit crimes. Why would they commit crimes? Because all their needs are met. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, that's based on some sort of presupposition that the reason people do crimes is because somebody hasn't met their needs or because, well, the only reason they commit a crime is because they're hungry. It doesn't account for the fact that they might commit a crime because they're a piece of crap, <laughs> right? They commit a crime because they have hatred in their heart, yep. because they are born into sin and they want to do bad things. It hadn't crossed their minds that maybe they do crimes because it pays better than working at McDonald's, yeah. because it's easy. I don't know, because it's fun, because they get a thrill out of it. Maybe they kill people because they enjoy it, like a thrill kill. I don't know. So it doesn't account for something called the sinful nature of man, which is what the Bible teaches, of course. But all of Western civilization is built on the premise that man is born into sin. He has a bent towards doing wicked things. And they've built a civilization around that. And that's why we have laws and things like that. So utopia, I had people like, oh, you know, people like you always rail on utopia. All we want is a just society. Everybody wants a just society, but you've got to define what that means and how we're going to get there. So utopia, the idea is real, real good. It's just that utopia is not based on actual justice. It is not based on the idea that everyone has maybe what you would call uh, free will. Like, like you have some sort of control of your life and you're going to make decisions that might be worse than the decisions I make. You know, and there are outcomes dependent upon that, how hard you work. Will you work at all? How you treat your neighbors, how you treat your customers and things like that. It doesn't account for that. And so then utopia demands that everybody has equal stuff. And if they don't, then you have to have somebody come in and regulate it. Mm. It's going to be the power of the state. It's going to be a dictator. It's going to be the mob. It's going to be something. And it's going to end really badly. Do you remember the science fiction book? I don't remember who wrote it. Maybe Alex, you might remember. Do you remember the science fiction book? It's a short story. 1984. About, it wasn't 1984, but it might've been the same guy. A Brave I, New World. Maybe it was where everybody who had a good, I think it was Brave New World. Everybody who had a thing, they were forced to 
hurt that thing. Like if they were really attractive, they were forced to be disfigured. If they were like super tall, they were forced to shrink down yes. and be shorter. If they were short, they were forced to have wear you know high high shoes so that everybody was always equal. Does that make sense? Have you read that one, Alex? I don't think so. I have not read it, but yes, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, there's a, somebody in the comments of this, either YouTube or if you listen on podcast or shoot me a DM. I'm, I'm, I read that in high school. And mm. I remember it's like such a great picture of what I feel like the woke world wants is that anybody who's doing well, we need to take from them. Yes. Uh, and anybody who's doing bad, we need to bring them up. So we all have the exact same thing. Yes. Again, not, we're not treated the same, which, which we all should be treated the same. It's that we all have the same thing, that nobody is too good looking, nobody's too rich, nobody's too in anything. It's just yes. we're all the same because we don't want people to feel bad if they don't have that. That's exactly right. In, in fact, maybe if, if you don't mind, let me explain what I mean by woke because yeah, people ask me every day, Oh, so so I'm not allowed to care for the poor, and I'm like, that's not what woke means. You know, Christians care for the poor. Don't yeah. don't be stupid. You yeah. know, but a lot of people say that, and they really. In fact, can I read this line? Yeah, because it fits with what you're just saying. Caring about the poor, hating racism. This is from the book. Caring about the poor, hating racism, desiring to raise the standards of education and minimize disparities between groups of people is not being woke. In my view, these are the actions of people who have been rescued and changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A love of Christ will naturally beget a love for people. It will also cause us to begin to hate the things that God hates, such as racism and bigotry. Yes. I love that. Amen and amen. That's not what being woke is. Yep. Wokeness is an entire worldview. Now, some people say, well, all that being woke originally meant was being aware of racial discrimination. Yep. Fair enough. And we should all be aware of racial discrimination. There's a debate, which I won't go on, I won't go into about, yeah, that's what the word, that's how the word started. It's become to mean something different. There's a debate on, but even when they said being aware of discrimination, they meant it in a very particular way of seeing the world that has now just played out. And is it really different or not? But I won't even get into that because it doesn't matter. The point is, is here's what's wrong with being woke. Let's talk about the, the worldview that built the West. The worldview that built the West is built on absolutes. It is saying that there is absolute truth. It is objective. It is real. It is unchanging. We don't always know what absolute truth is We're because we're, we're finite human beings. We're still discovering that. But because the, wor the world uh, does have absolute truth, that means there is absolute morality. It is fixed. Murder was wrong when the Bible was written. Murder's still wrong today. It's going to still be wrong in a thousand years. Murder is wrong, and it's always going to be wrong. And furthermore, as we keep getting up this chain, every single person is born in the image of God. That comes from the Bible. And so because every person is born in the image of God, John Locke, who is a, an, an Enlightenment philosopher, said, well, because of that, then we are, are born with God-given rights. Everybody is born, we call them inalienable rights now, but he got that idea from the book of Genesis because Adam and Eve were both created, both in the image of God. So he said, well, then that means everybody's born in the image of God. Nobody has the right to rule over someone else. And so there needs to be a system of morality, of laws in place that are the same for me and for you and for every individual. And they should not only be for white people, they should be for all people. So as we see with slavery and things like that, begin to be rectified based on this concept that all people are born equal. That, that's a good thing, right? So the Western worldview is, is built on that. And everybody has to be treated exactly the same. And that is what is justice. Everybody has the same opportunity. 
Well, the woke worldview is just as totalizing. So I call it a totalizing worldview. So the the Christian worldview is total. As I said, it's absolute. That individual rights should be for every single human being on the planet, no matter your race, religion, of sex, whatever, no matter what side of the tracks you're born on, right? A woke worldview says, actually, no, there are no th such things as absolutes. There is no absolute truth. There are no absolute morals. They are not fixed. They will change with time. The only thing that defines the whole world is power. And so their totalizing worldview is all about who has power and who doesn't. Oppress people and oppressors. Who, who is hurting whom? And because all there is is power, it is a world of uh, limited, scarce resources. Mm. Scarcity. Yep. And because there are scarce resources, the pie is only this big. And so everybody needs to have the same amount of the pie. And the only thing that's moral is making sure that happens. So if you don't have as big of a piece of the pie, then the people that do have the big piece of the pie, they are naturally immoral. Yep, they're taken from you. They're taking it yep. from you. They didn't earn it. They didn't, they didn't build wealth. They stole wealth. Yep. They are immoral. So if you need to burn their house down so we can redistribute it, then you burn it down. So it's not fixed morality. You know, whereas we said that earlier, right? We, yeah. we would say, hey, just because somebody has something more, they don't care what they did to you. You don't have the right to go and burn their house down and take from them. Yep. That's, actually, that's an immoral act, right? So that is what wokeness does. And so every single thing in life, you name it, if you understand the woke worldview, nothing that happens on the news will shock you. So I had so many people hitting me October 7th. Hamas goes into Israel and commits atrocities that most Americans have never even heard of. Right? We've never heard of stuff like butchering babies, and we've never heard of it. Two days later, you have college students. I don't know if people know this, but 52% of Americans aged 18 to 24, 52% or say believe that Hamas's actions were justified. 52% mm. of our young people believe, yeah, that was absolutely justified. I have all these people calling me, how in the world has this happened? Christians, non-Christians, parents, people that don't, how is this happening? Can you believe it? I say, yeah, I can believe this. Because if you understand the world through a lens of woke oppressors and oppressed, people in Israel have a whole lot more than the people in Palestine. The people in Israel represent democracy and they're flourishing and they are allies of America. You know, they call Israel Iran and some of the Muslim nations call Israel little Satan yeah. and they call us big, big Satan. Satan. So the, we are, if we are oppressors, then they are our, they are doing our imperialistic work yep. into another you know country. It's a long answer about what being woke is, but people have to understand it is an ideology that explains the whole world. You cannot bring Christianity and wokeness and bring them together to create a new kind of Christianity, which is what the church has tried to do. So where's the connection to Marxism fall in that? Because I know one thing you spend a lot of time in the book talking about is Marxism, uh, Hegel. Am I saying his name right? Hegel? Yeah, Hegel. Yeah. Hegel. Yeah. yeah, you talk a lot about the connections there. Can you explain that? Well, the worldview, as I just explained it, about oppressors and oppressed groups of people and the pile, of, you know, scarce resources, that comes from Marx. That is just a Marxist worldview. And Marx believed... Marx was a materialist. Now in America, when a lot of times when they say, oh, it's just such a materialistic culture, what usually people mean is that we are a culture that just idolizes material wealth. 
But materialism and philosophy actually means that there is no there is no other world other than the material world. Matter. Matter is all there is. There is no God. There is no Satan. There is no heavenly realm when, when you die. There is no spiritual realm. It's not even the realm of, of like ideas. No. All that there is is the here and now and the physical world that we see. So heaven needs to be heaven on earth. So we have to create utopia, a, a perfect society right here. And so Marx's idea of doing that is that the, the problem is, is that man needs to evolve into that perfect uh, Superman. Uh, sometimes he would use the word Superman, but man is going to evolve into a new godlike state. Marx was an atheist, but he was very spiritual, actually. A lot of people don't know that. Very supernatural and spiritual. So man is going to evolve through revolution. So the working class, the proletariat, he calls it, but that's just the working class needs to have a revolution against the business owners. They're the people that own, you know, all the, the means to, to making stuff, you know, we call them the business owners or the rich, however you want to call it, the wealthy, that revolution, which will be a violent revolution is going to actually make man in his spiritual core, become a new kind of man who no longer wants to own things. He's not even going to want to own stuff. He's not going to want to own something that you don't have. He's actually going to somehow miss, you know, from a change of heart, become a people that wants everybody to have the same things. And the only way to do that, here's the, here's the irony of it. <laughs> you know this a lot better than me, but the irony of it is that, that capitalism works because it works on the opposite, which is that man is, man is kind of going to look out for himself, you know? And the irony is that capitalism actually helps the poor because it helps lift them out of their poverty by, by, you know, well, you know, all the things by working hard and all these other things by competition. So the poor actually get lifted up, but in Marxism, the poor never actually get lifted up. They just bring the rich down. Yep. It never works, and it always hurts people. So what happened, you see, is that towards the end, I know I'm talking about a lot of things. I hope people will find it as interesting and not boring. But So so the Communist Manifesto comes in 18, like 58 or something like that. They're trying all these communist revolutions. They're not working. Towards the end of the 1800s, all of a sudden, they're like, oh, crap. Marxism isn't working, and it's such a bummer. These stupid Americans and, you know, these capitalist countries are actually going, they're kind of going good now, and they're beginning to really ramp up to where the poor are actually, they're actually not, not doing all that bad compared to what they were doing. And so in 1930, you had all these Marxists that were just bummed. You know, they're like the, they're like the people waiting for the UFO. They're yeah. like, the UFO's <laughs> coming next March. And we're all going to, yep. we know it, and the alien race, the end of the world, and then it doesn't come. And they're like, oh, crap, what do we do now? And we have to regroup. And now the UFO's coming in April of 2025. And it's like that. And so they regroup because they committed to Marxism, even though they realize that it doesn't work. And they go, well, then what can we do? And so they began to say Marx's understanding of the oppressed and the oppressors. They say, well, basically, he only wanted it in the material world because he was a materialist. 
That was his problem. We can't just change material conditions. We need to change culture. And it's culture that's oppressing people, not just materialism. So then they began coming out with all these philosophies. They call them the neo-Marxist critical theorists. They call them sometimes too. And basically the neo-Marxists just begin to say, okay, same model as Marx, but now we're going to apply that to not just people that are poor, but to people that are minority colored skin, minority ethnicities, or a minority sexual orientation, or whatever it may be, we're going to apply it to, to every single thing in life so that anybody who says that they don't have equal outcomes, not equal opportunity, but equal outcomes, whoever that person is, no matter how weird it is, we have to join them together with our coalition to fight against the bourgeoisie, which are the capitalists, the Christians, the majority culture, majority ethnicity, and capitalist superstructures. And that's where you get what we are, where we are now. I want to ask you how you how you see this has infiltrated the Christian church. But before I get there, I want to ask a question that I ask on every episode of the show. And that is kind of a unique thing we do is every episode, all the proceeds from the ads go directly towards the charity of the guest choosing. So on this episode, where should we send the money from this episode? Oh, the ad revenue makes. Let's do Samaritan's Purse. Okay. I usually do St. Jude for the last few years. I love St. Jude. So that's like a passion of mine. But in the moment we're in, we've had so many natural disasters Samaritan's Purse just shows up everywhere. They feed yeah. people, they clothe people, and they always say we're coming in the name of Jesus. And I love that. You know, it, it doesn't matter who you are, atheist yeah. or whatever, they don't care. They just let you know, this is why we're here. And the reason I like it is because all this justice that we're talking about in the world saying, well, wokeness was just nothing but justice. And because we love people, well, those ideas came from Christ. They didn't come from the secular atheist world. They didn't come from Marx. Marx hated people. Marx hated the poor. <laughs> Marx did not like anybody. And I talk about that extensively in the book. People have no idea how much Marx hated people. And do you know how many people Marx, Marx was one of the most influential philosophers of his time. And you know how many people showed up at his funeral? Yeah, it wasn't much. Nine. <laughs> Nine people show People always say, you know how much people love you by who? How much they show up at your funeral. You want to hear that? Well, that ought to give you an idea of how much Marx hated people. Didn't even go to his own dad's funeral. Two of his kids committed suicide. In fact, two of his daughters had a suicide pact with their husbands. Oh, and one of the both the daughters went through with it, but only one of the husbands went through with it. Mm. And just disgusting person, hated everybody. So this idea that social justice came from the secular world because they love people. No, it didn't. That came from Christ and that came from the followers of Christ. That's documented well in history. It's a real bastardization of history to say otherwise. So I like Samaritan's Purse. All right. Well, with that said, there's going to be an ad right here. Hey, here's an urgent message for podcasters, but only if you're seriously committed and you're willing to spend a little bit of money to work with a rock star team like Podcast Point Man. Did you know 90% of podcasts don't make it past three episodes? It's crazy, right? I mean, what's the difference between podcasters who fade away and then the top performers who get downloads, they make money, they raise capital, they have fun along the way? Well, I can tell you. 
a lot of it comes down to the team around you. You'll give yourself a much better chance of building a profitable and successful podcast if you have experts helping edit video and audio, handling monetization, and building a growth strategy. So if you're serious about taking things to the next level with your podcast or just getting started with one and blowing up your show, I highly recommend Kevin's team at Podcast Point Man. I hired Kevin over at Bigger Pockets, actually, and we work with his team to this day. So Here's what to do if you're a podcaster who wants to grow. Check out Kevin's free masterclass. It's called Five Ways to Grow Your Show Today. You can find that video on his homepage at podcastpointman.com. That's podcastpointman.com for a masterclass on podcast growth. Link in the show notes. All right, so in the Christian church, where have you seen this idea of whether it's wokeism, uh, weakness, wimpiness, Marxism, where have you seen that approach into the, in the Christian leaders or the Christian mm. church in general? I would say in general, the the worldview that we're talking about, I call it the wimpy, weak, and woke worldview. As I explained wokeness, the oppressors versus the oppressed model, I think that entire worldview, I think the church is lousy with it. I think our leadership, I like to call them the institutional leadership in the church. So when I say that, I don't mean necessarily somebody's pastor watching this. It's, there are thousands of faithful pastors. When I say institutional leadership, I just want to be clear of who I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you go online and you have, you're like, oh, I wonder what these institutional leaders that, that write Christian articles, they're pastors or preachers for the New York Times. If they're writing for New York Times, there's a good chance they're in the institutional leadership. Or like, I can't even think of the other outlets right now. They've even infiltrated into some, some of these institutional evangelical things like the Gospel Coalition. They, these, were like, these were like coalitions and platforms that began to be a help to pastors. So the Gospel Coalition was information about the gospel written by pastors for pastors. So if you're like, man, we're really dealing with gender theory at schools. How should we deal with it? I'll go to the Gospel Coalition, and from a pastoral heart, they're going to write, here's how you deal with gender theory in schools. Throughout the years, the Gospel Coalition has become woke. Those articles begin to basically softly affirm some of that woke worldview of the oppressed and the oppressor. So because of that, pastors at home that don't have time to sit around reading Marx and critical theory are like, oh, wow, these faithful pastors, they're really saying we have a real big issue with race and we have a real big issue with so-and-so, and we need to bring some diversity officers into the church to tell us how we can better love our black brothers and sisters or our brown brothers and sisters or or our gay you know, following and this and that. We need to bring them in. And before you know it, when you have DEI officers coming into your church, well, diversity, equity, equity, inclusion sounds really good until you understand what that is. And so, and so that's how it's coming into the church. It's coming in with what I would call critical race theory light. And th that comes into this idea that in the church, here, here, here's an example for people that want to go deep. Here's how they've done it. Biblical theology says this. I have more s sinful desires in my heart than I'm even aware of. That's true, right? Well, I repented for them. I'm saved. I've given my life to God. I've asked to be conformed to the image of Christ. I repented for that sin. I don't think I even do that. Well, you have evil desires in your heart that you're just not aware of yet. They will come to the surface eventually. The Holy Spirit will begin to show them to you so that you can repent for them. Well, that's true, right? So even if you say, well, I repented for my, maybe I did have some bigoted attitudes towards name the ethnicity. You know, maybe I did towards brown people in my church. I, I don't think I did, but, but I repented for that if I did. But I probably still have things I don't know of. True statement. Well, critical race theory says 
now we're not talking about Christianity. Critical race theory says, oh, oh yeah. If you're white, you are actually guilty of racism, whether you know it or not, because you exist in a system that oppresses black people or brown people. Everybody that's not white, you oppress them whether you know it or not. Well, that's what critical race theory says. So what's happened in the church, they've tried to marry the two, and you have preachers preaching from the pulpit or on the Gospel Coalition or whoever it was that was writing for the New York Times, basically saying, the truth is this, you have more sin, they're mixing it, you have more sin in your heart than you know because we are not, we are such fallen creatures and God is so big and we are so little, that's true. And because of that, you all, you do have racism against your brother you might not know it, but you do. So they're trying to marry the two. And because of that, then they start using what I would call would be the, uh, you know, when you go to the doctor and they say, here's what you need to do. What do you call that? Take prescription. Yeah. Your prescriptions. Yeah. And then they, they give you a list of things you, you yeah. got to exercise and yeah, this. they yeah. tell you all these things you got to do. Right. Well, then the pastors, all of the prescriptions or the things you got to do to get rid of it are exactly from the Marxist CRT, sorry, critical race theory, we call it CRT. They're straight from the CRT manual. They're not from the Bible. They're not from pray and ask God to show you any sin that you may have. Make sure you treat your brother no differently because he's brown than you would if he was, you know, black or, or Asian or what, white or what. You don't treat them any differently. That's what the Bible says, but that's not their prescriptions. Their prescriptions are you need to lift up the voices of people of color. You need to understand that just because you're a majority culture doesn't mean you are the default setting of culture. You need to make sure, and all of a sudden, it's just critical race theory. And what it does is it actually brings division. It doesn't actually unify, it brings division. So now when I go to church, and I've been going to church with a, this same, let's just hypothetically, the same Mexican guy of Mexican descent, my, my brown friend, we've been going to church for 20 years together. We've never had one issue I don't even, I don't really think about the fact that he's of Mexican descent and that I'm not. A, we don't even talk about it. We just, we've been best friends for 20 years. But now when I go to church and see him, I got to think, oh my gosh, what have I done to against his family? Yeah. What, what am I doing that is pushing him away? And then I'm asking, what can I do to make sure that brown voices are lifted up? And if he does not hold that Marxist worldview, he's going to say to you, bro, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Let me tell you one anecdote. This will help. I have a friend from my church who is black, and he used to make fun of this. He used to make fun of all the crazy Marxist stuff and people. He's like, and he's, you know, he's from Chicago. He's like, I'm from like the ghetto in Chicago where people, I know people that have been killed by the police. He's like, this stuff is, is so dark. And, and he's not into it at all until 2020. And he started all of a sudden posting all this stuff online about whiteness and this, and he went full BLM CRT, right? I called him eventually after about three months. I called him and I said, hey, I just wanted to check and see how you're doing. And I, I've noticed on your social media, you know, whatever. And he, he's like, I'm doing all right. He goes, he's like, bro, I hope you're not calling me to, to say that you're, that you're sorry for being white. And I said, oh, no, I'm not white. And he goes, because for some reason, all my friends are calling me saying they're sorry for being white. <laughs> and I said, well, have you seen the stuff you're posting? You're posting stuff saying that we are all guilty of sin because of our skin color and that we're all oppressing people. And he's like, well, I don't actually think that means that like you need to be. And I said, yeah, but 
That's actually what it means. So you're saying that all white people are guilty except for the people you know? And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that's a really long answer, but that's an anecdote to say that brings division. That doesn't bring unity. And once more, Christ brings unity. This stuff is just a false. It's a faux unity. It's not real. How do we balance or how do you suggest Christians in general balance the idea of we want to be, we want to include people, we want to bring them into the church. So kind of an Andy Stanley, like get him in the door kind of model of like, you know, keep it light, don't offend anybody, get him in the door, let the Holy Spirit do the work versus the guy like, you know, last night I'm walking down Broadway here in Nashville and, you know, the guy on the box screaming at people through his megaphone, like, you know, mm. sinners, you're going to hell. Uh, right. Very do, two different approaches, right? The Andy Stanley and then like the street preacher telling at you people to go to hell. How do you balance that? How do we mm. include the people who are gay or you know gender fluid or whatever the the, the thing is that yes. doesn't feel included in the church? How do we bring them in, but then hold to the truth that we believe? You know what I think we got to do. This this is such a great question. Here's what I I think we need to do. I affirm the heart. So Andy Stanley is saying a lot of things that I do not affirm, but I affirm the heart that says we don't want people to feel like we hate them Mm -hmm. because we don't hate them. Of course we don't. We don't hate people. That's like the opposite of Jesus. Of course. I do want people to feel comfortable coming into church, even if they go, hey, I'm not a Christian or I am whatever. I'm I'm trans. I'm I'm transgender. Whatever the thing is, I do want them coming to church. Of course. Let's have fun. Let's, yeah. you know, I, I want them to come to my cookout. You know, <laughs> they're yeah. my neighbors. Come over. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't care who you are. We're here to have some fun. Watch, watch football. I don't know. I don't know what they think. I affirm that. And I do think that it's been a pendulum swing maybe from, as I said, when I grew up, you know, you cannot wear black. You cannot have a mullet. You cannot do, you cannot listen to rock and roll music. You cannot go to the dance. You cannot, 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 cannot. Yeah. Well, we're, we want a pendulum from that to be like, what can we, is there anything we can do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't talk to those people. They have, they're yeah. wearing black, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, we don't want to do that. Let's reach out to people. What I think has happened, you see, is that too many preachers in the church, in my opinion, have accepted the world's standards of love and the world's standards of truth. And in the world right now, here's what they would say. If you say that you love me and that you want me to feel comfortable coming to your church as a transgender person, if you say that, but then you say from the pulpit that God created only two genders, male and female, you could be the nicest preacher in the world. You can say it the nicest way possible. You could say, here's the thing. I love you. If you're trans identified this morning, I want you to come back tomorrow. I don't hate you. I want to be friends. We do not want you to leave the church. But I do want you to know God did create you a specific way to be male or female. And that is that is how you keep in a right relationship with your creator. You could say it the nicest way possible. But if you say that, the world will say you're speaking. That's hate speech. You are not affirming me. To them, affirming means agreeing with them and never disagreeing. Just saying that is not affirming. It is hateful. And you are now basically just as bad as the guy on the corner of Nashville screaming, telling people they're going to hell. Basically, you're doing the same thing in their mind. So what I would say is, why don't we have a, I'm not trying to be Mr. Third Way, get a middle ground. I'm just trying to say what I think most people realize is, is actually reasonable, which is 
You have to speak the truth. If you're not speaking the truth, why are you a preacher? That's ridiculous. How are they going to hear the truth without a preacher? The Bible says that. How are they going to hear the gospel without a preacher? You have to speak what is actually true. At the same time, we have to be open-armed with people and compassion. I don't expect you to not sin if you're not a Christian. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't expect you to live perfectly if you are a Christian. We're going to go through this together. I love you no matter what you decide, but we're going to speak the truth. Don't let the world dictate what is moral. And when the world says, well, you, that's hate speech, we have to push back against that. You know, it's, it's not hate speech. We're just telling the truth, you know? Yeah. That's what I would say. Beautiful, man. So in this, I'm not the one being extreme. I would say in that scenario, the pastor letting the world dictate you know, what is okay to say and what's not okay. He's the one being extreme that, that in church history, that is not what preachers do. That's not what pastors do. I think that started here in probably the early two thousands and the seeker sensitive model. I think that that's when that really, it was just like pragmatism, sort of like the old model's not working. Preaching the truth isn't working. How do we get people here? Yeah. That starts that. And I, and I affirm, I affirm the heart behind it, but I don't think it works. All right, man. Well, hey, let's shift gears here over to one of the, we got three segments at the end here. The first one I call the three, two, one pivot. Uh, the idea of a pivot, meaning your life is going one You're direction. You're good at branding. That's Thank your you. thing. <laughs> that's my thing. You're good at branding. Dude, let's so, do the three, two, one the three, pivot. Two, one pivot. Hey, you know, I'm not the only one good at branding because I have here in my pocket some oh. John Cooper beard wax. Uh, so good job. I want that. you to be honest. Is yeah. it maybe the best smelling wax you've it, ever smelled? It, it might be the best smell, best smelling wax I've ever yeah, smelled. Yeah, let me smell it. Yeah, just, smell just, so right I, just so just I can remember. remember. Yep, Come right on. there. Brandon, is that tin? What? Is that tin enough for your beard? This, Are you gonna need more? <laughs> I may have uh, had several of these over the years. My wife got me this as a gift for my birthday, I think a year and a half ago. And I now think that is a one. good wife. I yeah, can see right? it's used. I appreciate yes, that. It is, it is used. So uh, anyway, Brandon, uh, let's move on. So the the idea of a pivot, right? Your life's moving one direction. Something changes it. So mm. I want to start with three books that pivoted your life. Three mm. books that have, and you can't say the Bible because that's what everyone says. <laughs> okay. Three books that have changed the direction of your life a little bit. I would love to. Remember earlier, like two hours ago when I said, <laughs> I'll tell that story yes, later. Yes, please. Yes. It's not what you're asking me, but it still matters. Okay. Pivotal thing with my dad after my mom died, I was failing. <laughs> I was a freshman. I was doing terrible in school. So, and I just, whatever. I mean, hey. It was three months. It was two months ago. And also so people get an idea. My mom died. I was after three years of fighting cancer. And really, it was just horrific. Fighting chemo. Ugh. Anyway, mom died. My dad starts dating someone like four weeks later. Was going to be getting married in like a month. I'm failing out of school. And I was just like, who cares? Nothing matters. That was pretty dark. And my dad, my dad was yelling at me about my grades. And he said, son... Nobody in this world is going to give you a pass because you walked around being the poor little boy whose mommy died. Mm. He was like, you get your beep together. And I was like, that's true. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> like harsh the best truth, but yeah. advice. Yeah. And I still look at, we got a B or something here. How are you oh, doing great. little B? <laughs> um, if you leave them alone, they won't sting you. Whoever says that is lying. Yeah, They will say, sting the dookie out yeah. of you. Okay. Anyway. Um, so that sort of pivotal advice I'm someone that likes books that just come out and j tell me the truth. Yeah. I don't need somebody to say, we love you so much and you're okay the way you are. Well, why did I read a book? I already felt like I was okay the way I am. I want to read a book that changes my life. Number one, I would say A.W. Tozer, it's T-O-Z-E-R, his book, 
The Pursuit of God. Mm, I just got that one. I no never, way. I never read it, but I oh. just picked it up a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Come on, baby. Yeah. Uh, my number one biggest Christian influence is mm. Tozer. And then any Tozer book you read, he, he's he's the best. Radically changed my life. Now, it wasn't the kind of book that like I was doing a certain thing and then I pivoted because the book taught me to. It was more like I didn't understand how much God loves mankind and how amazing it is that I can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. Woo, that's incredible. That book, it just, uh, mind blown. So all the books that really radically changed me are going to be that kind of a, a, sure. a book. The book called The Unshakable Kingdom and the Unchanging Person by E. Stanley Jones. That book taught me about the totalizing kingdom of God. I quoted him in my book, Wimpy, Weak, and Woke. He talked about the kingdom of God that was an absolute totalizing kingdom. And so that means that you see all of your life through that kingdom. How, so how am I a good parent? How do I run my business? I'm an entrepreneur. What does it mean to work hard? How do I treat my neighbors? How should politics be? You know, every single thing, you see it through the lens of the totalizing kingdom of God that starts like a mustard seed and grows. I've turned a few people onto it recently, and, and, and just within the last two weeks, I've had like three people like, this book is blowing my mind. Because it's older. It was in the 80s, I think, you know. He actually was a, a an evangelist who evangelized India. They called him like the Billy Graham of India or something <laughs> like that. And in the 50s and 60s, he was friends with like the Dalai Lama and stuff. So um, he would like witness to people like that. You know, it's pretty cool. That's cool. What's I, the third book that radically changed my life? Why don't we say J.C. Ryle, Ryle is spelled R-Y-L-E. The book is called Holiness. It's a little, it's not difficult, but it's it, it's the, the, the language, he was an Anglican sort of purity wasn't a puritan but that style but but if you're a christian that book will radically change your life in fact let me do this can i give you one more Please. i'm i'm Break four, the rules. Yeah. four three two one yeah. pivot <laughs> there it does go. not it's not good branding that's <laughs> like no, it's like the four two four, one why yeah. are we niner in there four yeah. nine or two come on <laughs> the nine all right. to ten all right so so okay. maybe i would take holiness out and i'll use this one as my third one all right um i would say conflict of visions by thomas sowell spelled S-O-W-E-L-L. Thomas Sowell's still alive. He's about 93. I think the greatest living intellectual in America. And he's a he's a sort of conservative economic philosopher. He He's black. He's 93, which means he grew up in a different time. Yeah. And he was a Marxist, went to college, started working for the state, doing stuff. And as he started doing, he's like, this, this state isn't working and ended up doing economics and and became a conservative economist. Uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Every one of his books will blow you away. Conflict of Visions is the best book, in my opinion, to explain the two major political worldviews. It explains like everything, and it's the best one. So check it out. Thomas Sowell, cool. the best. Love it, man. All right, two pivot people. So people have changed the direction of your life. Well, I had a pastor in college that no one will ever know and no one will ever know his name that I met. And um, we're not really in touch anymore in the last 20 years, but was very pivotal in my life. You know, very much like, hey, I know you're a Christian, but I know that you don't know how to live like a Christian. I'd like to teach you. Do you want to hang out and have, have mm. coffee? I said, no, coffee is disgusting. <laughs> but we'll hang out and we'd go to breakfast 
And he'd say, so what's going on in your life? And we talk about the real stuff, the stuff that you always wish you had somebody to talk to about. You know, sometimes we just call it discipleship, yeah. mentoring. I don't know what you want to call it, but it was great. It was like having a, a maybe like a dad that I didn't have talk about the real stuff, sex, lust, school, what you want to do for your life. And he would talk about, from, he's, he's like, well, here's what the Bible says. And then he'd say, well, I don't know. Are you going to do what you want to do? Or are you going to do what Jesus wants to do? That's your, up to you. It depends on what kind of man you want to be. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So very pivotal in my life. I would say there's a new relationship in my life that is also pivotal. I think that's probably a cool one to use. There's a man called uh, Dr. Michael Brown. People may be interested in looking him up. He's probably 70 years old, 68, I don't even know. Christian theologian, philosopher, brilliant. He's a Messianic Jew. And he has a radio show called In the Line of Fire, where people call in and ask questions. And, and he's, a, he's a scholar of like old languages. So he can read the Bible in the original languages and the original languages of the Quran and things like that to do debates. I think he's the absolute best Christian moral voice in the nation. I think he's the, if you had to say who's the number one yeah. best voice, it's Michael Brown. People should really go check him out. Michael Brown in the line of fire. And he's written, I think, 30 books or something oh, like wow. that. I think he has the best book on the issue of, well, actually, the name of the book is Can I Be Gay and Christian? Mm. I, you can get on Amazon. Can I Be Gay and Christian by Dr. Michael Brown? The absolute best book on the topic. Very cool, man. All right. And then do you have a, do you have a pivot quote? Any quote that you live your life by? Or that's changed your life a little bit? I do. It's from the Bible. I can use one from Please, the Bible. You can. All right. Because my mom taught it to me as a kid. <laughs> and it is the most radical. It's one that a lot of people learn as a kid. So you have to hear it as if you're hearing it for the first time, which is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. And you know, I learned it as a kid. I mean, I had a song. I was going to say, I know, I a song, song going in my head, yeah. Yeah, seek ye first, like Kumbaya almost. Kingdom of God and his righteousness. Yes. Yeah. Good work. Yeah. You know it. You got to go, yes. yep. <laughs> Alex over there just. <laughs> he's, oh, oh. he's like, what are we doing Shaking here? I'll tell you yeah. what we're doing here. We're giving <laughs> internet gold here is what we're doing, bruh. Internet gold. Um, but now, the older I get, the more I'm like, oh my gosh. Everything you need to know in life was wrapped up in that song we learned when we were four years old. <laughs> oh, that's so true. All right, man. Next section, past, present, future, kind of rapid fire. First of all, advice to your younger self. If you go back and give a piece of advice to your younger self. Usually people always ask me, my younger self in music, they say, okay, you've been doing music for 27 years, successful. What do you go back and tell when you're first starting? And I always tell them, I go back to younger John and I say, I know you want to be in the music business, you need to realize the business part. It's not just music, yeah. art. It's business, you yeah. idiot. Yeah. You got to understand how to run a business. And I think from 2006 to now, and, and I think this was funny, this isn't self-congratulatory or anything, but people usually say to me like, you're such a like music business guy, can you help me? And I'm always like, all right. I was not a music business yeah. guy. I was forced to do it because I couldn't pay anybody else to help me. And so now I, I try to help other people. I'm not a genius. I'm not an entrepreneur genius. I just go, you got to want it and you got to not be a moron. Don't yeah. spend more than you make. Figure out ways to do it. That's what I would tell younger me. Yeah. If I could go back to even younger, younger me, I would go back and say, do you remember that song your mom taught you? Seek <laughs> first. It's real. It yeah. <laughs> it's real. It will define your whole life. 
You know that it's funny you say that advice for musicians because it's the exact same advice I give every young like real estate entrepreneur who's like, I want to you know get a bunch of rental properties, be a landlord, or whatever. And I'm like, just treat it like a business. If you if you treat it like, oh, I'm just going to go and buy some property, or I'm going to go start a business of any kind, it's like most people treat those things like hobbies. Like, oh, I think I'll just go do that. I'll go play some music. I'll go and you know, go meet a real estate agent. It's the same advice though. I'm like, just treat it like a business. Go read a business book. Like how would you operate if this right. was actually important? Like, and you had to make it work. You treat it like a business. You'd have goals. You'd have, you'd work backwards from those goals to what you're doing every day. Stuff works. There's so. an, uh, that's great advice. There's a, I love, I love that. That's a, you're welcome. <laughs> I just took your no, advice. No, it's really you. good because <laughs> there's a, there's an amount of like unemotional ness. I yeah. don't know what the word is. You, you gotta not be emotional. And that sounds a little bit like what you're saying. Yeah. Like, oh, I just really want to buy that property. Yeah. Well, well, find out. Yeah. You know, maybe it's built on a from poltergeist. We learned it could be built on an Indian graveyard. <laughs> it could be. And uh, you should do your your. It's the same with music. You know, my biggest song is called Monster. Yeah. And I got the idea for Monster. There's two things. I was driving and I was super duper stressed out, and somebody cut me off in traffic. You know, my kids were young. And I had like a monster moment where I was like out of the car, like like about to go full MMA yeah. with some rando stranger <laughs> and as a Christian dad, you know, with, with like a Jesus bumper sticker in the name of Jesus. I'm about to, you know, you know, and I was just like, I want to write a song about that. Like, yeah. where does that person come from? And I went to see a film, The Hulk. <laughs> and in the movie, the Hulk, somebody asked somebody and he said, I feel like a monster. And I was like, that's my lyric. Yeah. And I loved it. I thought it was really great. I went to work with a songwriter and we were writing and the guy said, Hey, what do you want to write? And I said, man, I had this experience in the car. And then I heard this line, I feel like a monster. And I kind of like, I'm running a song called I feel like a monster. And he said, ah, uh, that's really cheesy. It's just a kind of a cheesy lyric. And I said, Oh, is it? And he's like, yeah, it's just not something I can imagine ever being taken seriously. And I said, Oh, okay. And, and so two weeks later I went on another ride with a whole nother stranger. And they said, what do you want to write about? And I, and I told him the story of the car. And he's like, oh, that would be a great thing to write about. And I said, yeah. And this is where the unemotional thing, if you're emotional, you've been shot down. I don't yeah. want to put myself on the, my neck on the line. It's embarrassing. Come up with an idea that everybody's like, that's terrible. You're ridiculous. But I'm unemotional. I'm like, oh, I think it's kind of cool. And I said, well, it might be cheesy, but what do you think about, like, I feel like a monster. And, and he's like, that's effing B.A. <laughs> and I was like, I thought I knew it was. That's really cool, right? And it became the biggest song of our career. So some of it is just being like, yeah, you're an artist, but uh, also realize that not everything you think is awesome is awesome. In fact, it's usually probably not. So put yeah. your big boy pants on. Yeah, I love it. You said that at the beginning of the episode, and I wanted to call it out, and I'll say it here. It's like there's such value, immense value to just – putting yourself out there and saying like, I don't know if this is good or not, but I'm going to try it. And mm -hmm. asking people like getting feedback is so incredibly difficult. I mean, I think about this, if I, if I want to translate it to my world of like buying a real estate deal, right? Like there are times where I find a property and I want to buy it. And then I don't want to ask the person who I know could actually tell me if it's yes. a good deal or not. Cause I don't want them to tell me it's a bad deal. Emotionally, I want to just do it. I want to, I want to believe that I'm the smart one mm -hmm. and I can figure it out. And if I ask for help and they say, no, that hurts my ego. So I'm not even going to ask for that advice or help. I can relate yeah. to that. It's the same exact thing with music. I'm almost like, I don't even want to know what the label thinks about yeah, this yeah, song. That's yeah. the hit. Yeah, that's going to be And it. I don't yeah. want to know. And this, I still, to this day, I get this like anxiety yeah. of, I don't want to know. And then I'm like, yeah, but I don't know. What is, eventually people are going to hear the song. Yeah. You know, you may as well get advice. 
That was another th- hard thing, though, to walk through. And I know I'm just yakking. Now, we won't get into this, <laughs> but it is another part of being an entrepreneur is that just like that real estate property, I assume sometimes the advice they give you is just dead wrong. Yeah, 100%. And you go, wait a minute, but I believe in that. Pro- I have vision for what that yep. property could be, and I yep. don't know why they don't. I'm putting my my neck on the line. I'm putting my here it is. I'm putting my money on the line. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I tell you what, music. My song Monster was the exact same way. The label liked it. They're like, I don't think it could ever be a hit, yeah. but we liked it. And I also had another song on the album, which is the one as we said that, that one of your colleagues said he used to wake yeah. up to when he was in high school every day. Yeah. Awake and Alive. When we wrote Awake and Alive, the label said, actually, we don't even think it should go on the record. Oh, geez. <laughs> it shouldn't even go on the album. It's just not good enough to go on the album. And so you're getting this feedback, and I'm, I'm putting my neck on the line. I want to hear their feedback. I'm going, okay, well, I guess we had to write something new. But I can't let this go. I believe in this song. And that's part of the entrepreneur side that's really hard. Sometimes, just like all the famous stories of FedEx, yeah, you know, sometimes yeah. you know, nobody believed in it. But I had to just say, I do. And then we put Awaken Alive on the album and it became our first number one radio song, you know? So yeah, there was, a, there was a period of time. You ever seen those like skits? Uh, I think I've seen them on like, TikTok and Instagram. Well, there, there's a guy pretending to be an Air One DJ. You'd be like, all right, well, that was, you know, he, so it starts every, <laughs> he like, that was for King and Country with whatever, you know, the song. Uh, you know, so glad to have you here. Listen to Air One, blah, blah, blah. All right, time for our next song. It's King and Country. It's like the same song. <laughs> and that there was a period where Air One was playing like those two songs, really like Monster and, and Awaken Alive. Right. Every other song. It was just constant. So, yes, yeah, I, I hate that Air One did that until it's my song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and exactly. Then, then it's just, like, oh, this is great. They're just being smart. Yeah, they're just they're just smart <laughs> smart business owners right there. <laughs> and, well, but it makes sense when it's my songs. Uh-huh, yeah. When it's King and Country, man, yeah, yeah. come on. Yeah, now. Come on. We, yeah, we've heard enough of that. <laughs> All right. All right. Moving on. Uh, almost the last question. Someday you're going to pass away, hopefully a long time from now. Yeah. And your family's going to gather around and they're going to be talking about you. What do you want them to say about you, family, friends? What do you want that legacy to be? Oh, no compromise. Mm, no compromise. That's the end. I love it. It's the only short answer I give. No That's compromise. <laughs> you know, there's a great, you know, my, my wife was laughing and I am in no way comparing myself to Athanasius, but there's a church father called Athanasius and she was reading about him about a year ago. And she's like, do you realize how much, you know, we don't know a lot about church history, but in the second and third and fourth centuries, fifth centuries, you're getting these church fathers because all of a sudden there's all these these very big disagreements about doctrine. We take these doctrine for granted. The Trinity, the, yeah. the fact that we we believe that Jesus was not created by the Father. You know, Jesus is not a created person. Jesus is God, you know, right? you know that, sort of, that sort of thing. God become flesh. Like people gave their lives for these doctrines because other people were saying, "That's no, it's not. That's not what the scriptures say. They didn't have these councils and they didn't have to go in and they would duke it out, these people. Sometimes you get killed for it, right? So like Martin Luther in the Reformation, he should have been killed for that by providence. All these other things happen and here we are today believing these doctrines. But there were people only 100 years before Luther saying the exact same things as Luther that were burned at the stake for yeah. saying it, right? So she's like, did you realize that Athanasius lived his whole life against everybody? And on his tombstone said, Athanasius against the world. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> John Cooper against the world. Against the world. Is that it. tough? Man, talk about having some kahunas, man. <laughs> that guy, that's freaking awesome. Yeah. There you go. 
No, com- no compromise. No compromise. All right, man. Two more questions. First one. Wh- what are you excited about? Like anything coming up that you're excited about? I know, obviously, the book right now. Oh, this election year is going to be so fun. It's going to be be no volatility. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going to be unified in the red, (laughs) white, and blue. Oh, my gosh. This year is going to just suck. (laughs) It's going to be so bad. But, no, in all all reality, I've been telling people, look, look, you got to prepare for the volatility of 24. It is going to be much worse than I think, than we think. It's going to be really, really bad. At the same time. God is so faithful and he is going to bless his church. I think we're also going to see a lot of people get born again. I'm beginning to see it now because what the world is offering is so terrible and so ugly. Like I say, I have friends of mine who do not want to hear me talk about Jesus. They do not want to talk about the Bible, but they do want to know why, John, why is my kid coming home with teaching on gender theory? Why, why are they telling my kid that he should be a girl? Why are they telling my kid that because of the color of your skin, you're guilty? And it's almost impossible to have that conversation without talking about the Bible. Because there's a reason, I say to my friend, I'm like, brother, there's a reason that you think this is weird. It's because you were raised with a Christian worldview. I know you're not a Christian, but you were raised in, with a belief. And I, and I go through a whole list of things. They say, well, yeah, I believe all those things. I say, well, that came from the Bible. That brings a certain amount of validity that the Bible is true, if you think that worldview makes sense, versus the insanity of the 2020s. So what I'm excited about is I believe the church is going to be blessed, even if we have harder times than we've had in the past. We're going to see people get saved. And then we're going to see people that love the Lord. We're going to see their lives blessed, I believe. That we're putting, if you put biblical principles in your business, well, I don't want to go too deep down the road, but I'm sure we agree. It's going to lead to more positive results than if you don't. Yeah. So I'm not guaranteeing everybody wealth. Yeah. We're not prosperity. I'm not saying. <laughs> Name it, it, claim it. Come yeah, on. <laughs> yeah. You put big little you'll you'll be making ten million dollars yep. a year. So your seat of faith, man. I'm not saying. <laughs> I would be saying that if they send me a check <laughs> yeah. at johnlcooper.com. Much, much better. Um, but I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we all believe that if you do biblical principles, it's going to go better for you than if you don't. Yeah. How's that? You know, you treat your customers a certain way. You treat, you know, people come to your website or come to your whatever, and you steal from them. They're not going to come, but word's going to get around eventually that, that you're not where they want to go, things like that. So I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is we do need to prepare for this year. It's going to be brutal, but we also need to know that God's going to be blessing his people that follow his word. Our outcomes are just going to be so good. When I say outcomes, I don't necessarily mean we're all going to be rich and material. That could just be outcomes well, here you go. I'm not calling any of my friends saying, what in the world's going on? My kids became a Marxist at college. Yeah. What's going on? My kids, they're marching to kill all the Jews and, you know, in Israel. Why is my kid, you know, why is my son saying there's a girl? He's having gender surgery. I didn't even know this. Well, I'm not calling my kids. Why? Because I'm blessed. Because we believe in the totalizing kingdom of God. You know what I mean? So that's what I'm, that's probably the only thing I'm excited about. It's probably the only thing I'm excited about, you know? All right, man. And well, and the new Dune film. The uh, second Dune film comes out. I'm excited about that too. Yeah, the first one was pretty good. Yeah, it was good. The book was amazing, but you know, the, the movie was good. We'll see how the second one is. Have you read Red Rising yet, the book? Uh, no, my wife has. Dude, favorite sci-fi book of all time. Yeah? Yeah, it's so good. Really? Anyway, read it. She, likes it. it. she liked it quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm surprised. I don't hear a lot of women that love that book because it's such, it's like Braveheart meets mm. Ender's Game. 
Uh, Braveheart's my wife's favorite movie. So, okay, that so, would explain. But, yeah, it's Braveheart. Know, as my, as I said, she, yeah. she she likes Athanasius against yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so she, she, she's the one that's just like, you know, I'll be like, hey, Corey, I wrote this whatever. Does that sound a little too harsh? And she's like, no, it could be harsher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good woman. Yeah, she is. Uh, where do people uh, connect with you, learn more about you? You got a website, I'm sure. Where do they buy John Cooper oh, beard. Man, I'll tell you, my, my beard products are amazing. They're all natural. Um, <laughs> they're made in Wisconsin, all USA, and they're just so good. I don't personally make them, just so people know. But and you're, you're not making your in your kitchen. No, no. But mm. my but my partner is, okay. you know, <laughs> in his kitchen. Thank God. Much better. So yeah, go go to johnlcooper.com. That's the only place you can get the physical book right now. The Kindle version is available on Amazon. On johnlcooper.com, you'll also see where you can get my beard products, which is called hawkandhatchet.com. But you can just go to my website and do it there. You can follow me on uh, Instagram, Twitter. All of that is John L. Cooper. Finally, I do the podcast, which is called Cooper Stuff Podcast. And in case people want that, it can be intense, but Cooper Stuff is basically once a week. And it is just basically culture worldview, politics, everything through moral issues, everything in my best through a Christian worldview. All the light, easy stuff. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) sometimes people are like, this is so intense. I'm like, I'm just trying to tell you the Bible says you don't have to do it. You can tell me I'm wrong, but this is the way I see it. So uh, that is Cooper stuff. Find that on YouTube or Rumble and wherever you want to go. Obviously, Skillet Music. Go listen to Skillet. That's what you need to do. If you're looking for something in the gym to lose those pounds from <laughs> from uh, Christmas pounds, go to Skillet Music and check it out. Invincible is one of those. You put it on and you work out in the gym. And yeah, it yeah. makes you feel, feel invincible. invincible. Yeah, come on, baby. Love it. All right, man. Appreciate you. Thank you. You as well. Boom. And that is the show. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of A Better Life with Brandon Turner. I hope you enjoyed the insights and the wisdom uh, brought to you today on the show. If you found value in this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, Your feedback actually does help us improve the show. We look at the feedback. I look at the feedback. And we can reach more people with our message of living a better life. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow me on social, Beardy Brandon. And hey, before I go, this show is all about the habits, actions, and beliefs that can give you a better life. But in case you're interested and you want to know my opinion on what it takes to live the best life ever, and that includes some of my kind of weird spiritual beliefs maybe, check out abetterlife.com slash bestlife. Abetterlife.com slash bestlife. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next time on A Better Life with Brandon Turner.